This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There is more to the story than just postpartum depression. This podcast aims to share it all, from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to new parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Mom and Mind. I am your host, Dr. Kat Kayani, a perinatal psychologist. And we are going to be talking today about a postpartum psychosis. Now, this is a very often misunderstood condition and diagnosis for a lot of reasons. We often mostly just see the kind of worst case scenario versions of postpartum psychosis in the news, but there is quite a range of experience. And we are going to be hearing about one of those today with our guest, Jillian Parente, She is going to be talking about what happened along her journey and a lot of the missteps along the way of mental health and medical professionals who really dropped the ball. She did not get the help that she needed. And in many ways, because of that, it turned her life upside down. The diagnosis itself is very difficult to deal with, let alone people not being able to understand what's going on for you. Uh, have misconceptions around what's going on for you. And, you know, to, to really no fault of anybody except for our systems, we, we are not educating people well enough on any perinatal mental health condition, let alone postpartum psychosis. So often parents, partners, family members are not able to recognize what's going on for the person who's dealing with it. And with postpartum psychosis, sometimes they themselves are not aware of what's going on. And our guest today, Jillian, she's a therapist and she's a licensed clinical social worker. And for herself, even, there was some great difficulty in figuring it out and understand what was going on. So you'll hear more about her journey and what happened along the way for her. Jillian is a mother, a partner, a licensed clinical social worker. She is an adjunct professor of social work, champion of maternal mental health, and a multi-trauma survivor, as well as a postpartum psychosis survivor. Jillian specializes in trauma work with a focus on women's mental health. She is a professor of adult trauma as well as addictive behavior patterns. More importantly, she's a mother of a smart and beautiful four-year-old girl, She continues the extensive process of recovery from her episode of late-onset postpartum psychosis over three years ago. She maintains her role as a mental health professional, and as a result of her postpartum psychosis, Jillian lost everything near and dear to her, and it changed her entire life. Her story really illustrates that mental health conditions do not discriminate. She believes that intensive healing is not an end goal, and it is a journey. And we will be able to hear some of her journey in our episode today. Jillian touches a little bit on how previous trauma plays a role in mental health and in her specific mental health journey. Um, Again, touching on that lock. Again, we're going to be touching on that lack of professional knowledge of maternal mental health conditions and really what the risk factors are, what to look out for uh, and how that impacted her journey. 
Now, for those of you who are listening, who maybe haven't heard stories of postpartum psychosis before, or you yourself are recovering from a postpartum psychosis episode, just take note that since we are talking about postpartum psychosis, for some people, it may be triggering or you might have a heightened sensitivity to this information. So just monitor that for yourself. And if you need to step away and take a break from listening to the episode, please feel free to do that. We will be here for you when you are ready to come back. Given that, a lot of people's misconceptions about postpartum psychosis is that it involves harm coming to a child. Um, And you'll hear in Jillian's story that that is not at all part of what happened for her. And in fact, it was quite the opposite being fiercely protective of her daughter's health and well-being. And I think this is a really important distinction to hear and to recognize throughout this story. I'm incredibly grateful to Jillian for coming on to share this with us. So let's not wait anymore and meet Jillian. Welcome, Jillian. Thank you so much for coming on and being open to sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. I invite you to start wherever you'd like to start with your story. Okay. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I would say in, I'm a couple years out from my experience. So I've been in recovery from the experience for about three or four years now. And I think it helps to start kind of thinking about it chronologically and what I learned about in hindsight. But at the time I didn't realize immediately after giving birth, I was having some major intrusive thoughts and I did not share them with anyone. And so Looking back, I realized that that was a big piece of a warning sign or some kind of indicator that something that I needed additional support. And I didn't realize that at the time throughout the postpartum period, initially after coming home and getting settled, I did experience some more intrusive thoughts, but in general, I was really in a positive place for the most part, of course, any new mom anxiety or, or sadness, but I did enjoy the first couple months being home and my ex-husband who was my husband at the time was home with me for two months. I remember like when he went back to work, that's when things got really difficult for me. He also worked long hours and I was with my baby for 14 hours straight on Saturday. And so that was a big adjustment to having him home throughout the course of the beginning. But I think another big kind of turning point was when I went back to work. So I went back to work in January. My baby was delivered in October. And that first week that I went back, there was a lot of struggle around where was I going to breastfeed that had, I mean, on pump that had caused me a lot of anxiety. And I had tried to prepare before going on maternity leave. And I wasn't given a lot of support or direction around that. And the first day that I returned to work, I was encouraged to pump in the bathroom, which is not okay. I worked in a correctional facility at the time and it was not comfortable or feeling hygienic or anything. And that caused a lot of problems throughout the first couple months back to work. But also I remember I was consistently getting migraines every Friday that week and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And the first time I got one, it was so bad that I ended up having to drive myself to the emergency room and they thought I was having a stroke because I couldn't like verbally talk. Yeah. It was really scary. Yeah. And I bring that up because I noticed that a lot of my symptoms ended up manifesting like into physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I still experience that now. Mm -hmm. Thankfully I got a hold of the migraines. I don't even know when, but after a long period of time, And then another like bigger point that I remember is being at work and calling my doctor on a break and saying like, I'm extremely irritable. I need some help, but I don't know what's going on. And my primary care provider at the time prescribed Zoloft. And so I had a history of some struggles with depression and anxiety prior to pregnancy, but I had only been on medication for a very short period of time in college. And I really had never been on medication but I was willing to try because I just felt very snappy and irritable. I also returned to work. I ran a mental health program and I left work with about eight to 10 clients and I came back to 30 clients. And yeah, so that was a huge transition. And I was often asking for additional support and just wasn't getting that need met. This is in that correctional facility. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
So pumping and being coordinating, facilitating and providing services to up to 30 men on the psychiatric unit of that facility was extremely stressful. And I mean, that's not, that's an understatement, but yeah. Yeah. And then managing when I came home, I was on the weekends, not able to quite recover because my husband was gone for a long period of time. And I was kind of the only one on at that point. So I went on the antidepressants around, I think it was April. And I looking back now, I also realized that I had a lot, a lot of risk factors of postpartum psychosis. I did a training after I had been hospitalized. And I just remember saying to my mom, like I had every single risk factor and no one pointed this out to me. So I'd had gestational diabetes. I had a smaller history, but definitely a history of some mental health stuff, a trauma history, a really long birth, not feeling supported in a lot of different ways at work, at home. And then the biggest thing, oh, and an unplanned pregnancy. And then the biggest thing was I went off of, I stopped breastfeeding and I was on an SSRI, which can send someone into mania. And I didn't know that at the time. And no one had told me that. Years later, my psychiatrist had sent me an article and said, like, this is, this is a thing. And it's not very common, but it happens. And, and so like that definitely created some resentment of like, why didn't anyone prepare me for this? Right. So um, I I would, I would love to come back to this um, because I think it's a really important point, what you're describing. So no one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids, because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Just so I can understand and and for the listeners to understand, Starting the antidepressant, no one had assessed you for for anything to see if you had any like history or family history of any kind of like bipolar disorder or any kind of anything, depression, psychosis in the family, nothing. No. So I didn't go to a psychiatrist. I was with my primary care. Oh, sure, sure. Knew me well and she knew my family well. She actually Mm -hmm. sees a lot of my family members and I don't fall her at all. Oh, sure. Um, No. Right. But, Thanks for making that clear. Yeah, yeah. I No one assessed for that. And that's the other thing too. The lack of assessment for women, and I'd like to talk about that more too, after <laughs> the sick week checkup or the screening here and there. I have a lot of feelings about the screening, the postpartum screening that was that was offered. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah, I, I would love to, to, we can come back to that. I would yeah. love to like hear, hear the, the scope of, what you experienced and then kind of go back and see what things you would have like changed. Sure. 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 Mm -hmm. I stopped breastfeeding in July. I was going on vacation with my family and it was, it had been really hard. And so the struggles at work made it really hard. And then I think even, I think 
I also learned that the medication that I was taking from my migraines to make them go away, I wasn't on a daily, it was as needed, could have possibly impacted my milk supply. And no one told me that at the time oh, either. Gosh, right. So I was taking that like once a week at least. Mm-hmm. And then with the stress of being at work and them not being as supportive with breastfeeding, a lot of barriers I had to go through for that. I was really only pumping like two ounces a day or so. And that was a really big struggle. And I felt a lot of like a failure in that when I was doing all these things, like very holistic things to try to increase my milk supply and manage my stress level. So by the time I went on vacation, I was like, you know, let's just kind of, we were already kind of weaning and she was already using formula and starting to eat solids at that point. And I decided to kind of not stress about it while we were on vacation. So at that point that it was just like you, you stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think I really fed her breastfed throughout that vacation. I think it kind of just naturally stopped at that point. Mm -hmm. And so that was in July. So that was about 10 months or so. And on that vacation, I experienced a traumatic situation with my ex-husband. And that really, I mentioned that because I realized that it really shook my level of like emotional safety within the relationship. And So, and that ended up being like the beginning of, of how mania kind of started. So we went away at the end of July, early August. And by September 1st, I was in a full blown mania, but I didn't realize that at the time. So, so yeah. So stopping the breastfeeding, being on the antidepressant, that traumatic situation. So around September, we actually were going on another vacation with my mom's side of the family and I remember we were driving down there. He had gotten off work late and I didn't sleep that night. And, and that's why I know that it was that date. And when I, usually I would get a headache when I didn't sleep well. And I just was fine. I had a lot of energy. I was extremely talkative. I was really, really wanting to be social, very excitable. My sister later told me like, you were so happy and you were talking for like two hours straight. And (laughs) And so I didn't, they didn't realize it either. They just knew that things were different. Right, right. Then I went back to work after that and was really trying to pay attention to like, I had felt better. I wasn't having as many migraines. And I was like, well, how can I continue to replicate this? So I'm not feeling as much physical pain. And fast forward September 24th, a little bit prior to that, I started having paranoid delusions that my husband was going to kill me. And that he was going to hurt me and my baby. So a lot unfolded in between that time, but it was just, it was pretty significant, pretty severe. I went to work that day and he had tried to meet me for lunch or something after, or we were trying to reconnect because he could tell something was off and I didn't want to meet him. And I left and I, I was gone for two weeks. I was living in motels I eventually got my daughter with me and she was with me for a period of time. And it was, it was extremely traumatic. My family, I tried to call them and explain to them that I felt unsafe and they didn't understand. And they were like trying to talk sense into me, but there was no, like, I just was like, you're not agreeing with me. You don't see how unsafe this is. I don't want to talk to you either. At some point, point then it sounds like you realize that something was not right yeah Uh. well I don't know I mean I realized that I thought something that my husband was gonna hurt me and I was like I gotta go like I need to protect her and I need Uh to protect me and I we gotta go right right so with your family kind of not understanding what you're saying there, there was some part of you that that knew that you were not that something was serious uh like at least about him yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. So you oh, were, yeah, I fully believed it. Okay. Right. So you, not necessarily that you weren't safe, just that you, you felt unsafe around him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I really thought he was going to hurt me. Right. I a different, at one point I had gone to the house. I think I, some of the details, like it's a lot, but I like thought his son was in the neighborhood and that he was, he was trying to kill me. And I was like very paranoid going into our home. So Eventually, I got my daughter to be able to be with me. Again, she was like 11 months at the time. And so we were like living in motels trying to like escape and stay away from him for a long time, for two weeks. As your family, did anybody know where you were 
Mm-hmm. They didn't know where we I, we were. I wasn't in touch with them. I just remember being like very active around making sure that she was okay, like going to get her clothes and a new car seat and like just like very much attending to her needs. So at some point, my I learned later that my family was out looking for me and they were really concerned about where I was and they didn't know where I was. And I was really like all over. I, I'm from Baltimore and I was really in, in surrounding areas in the county, in the city, just try, just feeling like people were after me. And then, so at one point my family found me and my dad is also a psychologist or he's a licensed professional counselor. And he had gotten an emergency petition for me to go to the hospital. So when my family found me, they had brought the police with them. And there was like a caravan of my my mom, my um, dad and my stepmom. And I think my aunts were there as well. And the police were there. And I ended up getting emergency petitioned, which is was also extremely traumatic. I was they took my daughter from me at that time. They gave her to my ex, who was my husband at that time. I had no empathy for him. I felt like he was like putting on a show and he was acting as if he was so sad and maybe he wasn't. I just, I just didn't believe anything to do with him. And then I was handcuffed and put in the back of a police car. And I remember telling the police officers, I didn't want my family to know what hospital I was going to. So they took me to a a local hospital. I'd never been to that hospital before. I'd never been psychiatrically hospitalized before. And I thought it was ridiculous. And I was in and out in two hours. They said, you're just stressed out. They thought I was in a domestic violence situation and they let me go. And I had been driven there by the police. I had nothing. I didn't have, I don't even think I had like my ID on me. I don't know how I even like figured out what to do from there. That was on October 7th. On October 9th, I had been checking case search because in the midst of all of this, I filed for divorce as well. I wanted to just be completely rid of him. And I had just happened to be checking the Maryland Judiciary case search. And I saw that I had a court hearing scheduled for that day. This was October 9th. I checked it in the morning and the court hearing was scheduled for an emergency custody hearing at one o'clock that afternoon. It also was my daughter's first birthday. Yeah. So I was like very torn up about all of it. I remember frantically like calling the public defender's office, trying to get representation. I think it had been like Columbus Day the day before. People weren't really answering the phone. Right, right. And so I showed up at the court hearing and I didn't have any support. And my family was there with my ex-husband. And I remember vivid details of that situation, but I really felt like my family was backing him and not me. My mom even testified against me and I understood, I can logically understand what that was like for her trying to show that there was a clear difference in my behavior. That's what she was trying to show the court, but I still have trouble with that, accepting that. And then the magistrate from the hearing had, I remember her saying like, you need to get some help but we're giving temporary custody to your, what was my then husband. And it was indefinite. It wasn't like, it wasn't like you go to treatment and in three months we reconvene. It was like a temporary order for a year. And that's only because I think that's just when they expire. I don't even know for sure. And that was it. And I had to, I had to agree to supervise visitation with my daughter. And I had to also select who I wanted to be the supervisor And my sister was one of the only people that I really trusted at the time. And since she wasn't at the court hearing, they would not allow her to be the supervisor. So I selected my aunts and I had to have visitation on Wednesday and Saturday for very short periods of time. And that was still like very open-ended, like for how long? I don't know. It was just like, that's just what it was. And then I remember on the first visitation, my sister had come just to be supportive. And that's when I started to realize like something was wrong. And I was like, I need help. I mean, I had tried, but I, I knew I needed help then. So at this point, where were you? Yeah, where were you living? I was still like bouncing around motels. And like I had withdrawn all of our money out of our joint account. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just to survive. And I was rationalizing that. I mean, yeah, I needed to survive. And but maybe it was excessive spending too. looking back at the mania. I don't know. But I was really just buying like clothes and food and where I was going to stay. Right. So 
just so I understand the the timeline there, the yeah. from that court date, then you were you were only given visitation. You were moving around to wherever you could go. Mm-hmm. And how, who was supporting you? Did if they if the court was telling you to get help, who was helping you? No one. No one was helping. And how how are you supposed to get help? Right. There was no one. Okay. Okay. No it's just like go that. get help. Yeah. We hope we'll see what happens. Help. That's it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for, I think our first visit was the 14th. So the court was on the 9th. I think it was the following Wednesday or something. And I was staying at that time in one particular place in the county. And yeah, I went to the, I hadn't been sleeping still very well. I had a very low appetite. I, I don't even know all the day to day, but a lot of the day to day was like trying to take care of business, which is like, I had a private practice at the time too. And I was in touch with the practitioners there. And I was like, look, I need a little extra time, but I may even, I also resigned from my job at the correctional facility amidst all of this. Cause I didn't feel like they were supportive in the way they could have been. And I was like, okay, well I'll start taking clients private practice and take on a full caseload. And that's how I'll support myself. And I mean, I was really like functional in a way, <laughs> right? I was paying bills. Some of that money that I had taken out, I was still paying bills to maintain things. So in terms of like your internal experience at that yeah. time, it, it sounds like up until it's where you're going to take us, it sounds next. It sounds like you internally felt fine. Like there was no indication for you internally that anything was amiss or different. No, I just, no. Yeah. Everything felt I felt like everyone's out to get me and I did, but I wasn't putting that together that maybe there was paranoia going on. I felt like I was like, I'm doing this. Like I'm taking my kid and I'm going to take care of her and I'm going to keep her safe and make it work. So that part of you that was like functional was doing the day to day. That might've been, I'm thinking of like somebody looking from the outside, like Mm -hmm. would be able to say on one hand, you are taking care of all of these things. You are able to do all of these things. And maybe even internally you're, you're like, I'm taking care of business. I'm fine. But then this other part was having the paranoia, not necessarily saying there were different parts, but there, there was like the functional part of you. And then the other part that was really having a, a lot of difficulty, but didn't know. Yeah. And I didn't understand why my family wasn't backing me. That was a big part. Yeah. That was a huge part. Like that didn't make sense to me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you you were about to take us up to your, I think, first visitation where you realized you might need help. Need help. Yeah. Yeah. So I was talking to my sister. I told her I needed help. And I said, I will go to the hospital. So was there a specific indicator for you that you needed help? I think I was really tired. I felt worn out. I just, I was like, why am I doing this? Why do I have visitation? Like, this doesn't make sense to me. Uh, right. And so, and I was really, yeah, I was really tired. And mm-hmm. so that night we made arrangements that my aunt and my sister would bring me to Johns Hopkins, which is a very prominent hospital around here. My family had some connections with like psychiatrists and they just said, that's where we recommend you go. And so. I drove my car to my sister's house. My family was worried that I was going to like flee again. So they were like following me there and kind of escorting me there. And they said, just leave your stuff here and we'll take you. So I went with the clothes on my back and I didn't know what to expect. And I got in there and I was admitted immediately. I don't know exactly what was shared. I mean, I think, I think the emergency petition that my dad had written maybe was used to get, I don't know exactly how that worked, but I got admitted and I didn't see a doctor until like three o'clock that morning. And it was for like 20 minutes. And he told me he had written on this thing that I had delusions, but he didn't understand what was, what was actually delusional and what was truth. He thought I was in a domestic violence situation and an explicit domestic violence situation. And I was there for four days I ended up discharging myself because I wasn't getting any help. They weren't able to find me a bed. I was asking them for to be transitioned into like a mental health, either admitted or transitioned into like transitional care in some way. I needed housing at the time. I didn't feel safe going home. And I really had only seen a doctor like once or twice in four days. They didn't even like off. I had to ask them like, can I take a shower? Like, 
I don't have clothes, like all these things. I, it was just not. This was like a general short-term impatient. Like psych unit. ER. Yeah. It was psych like ER. Yeah. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was scared too. People were definitely like actively psychotic and right. there's so without a bed available to you, where were you? I was like, it was like in this big room where everybody was just waiting for treatment. Like they weren't admitting people into like the inpatient unit. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, I noticed that people with like substance abuse issues were, were finding like transitional care or right. inpatient care, but I didn't have that. So I communicated with my dad and my aunt and told them I would rather take care of getting myself resources from home. My aunt allowed me to stay with her for a period of time while I kind of figured that out, but that didn't end up going well. Eventually, I I know now that she was scared, but I felt like they were exerting a lot of control that didn't feel helpful for me at the time. And oh, uh, also, they wouldn't get nobody would give me my car back. So my car was at my sister's, and like, so I had no independence. I felt like a child. Right. So at at this point, did you or anybody else understand what was going on? No, no one. Mm -hmm. No. Okay. They just no. So I went to an outpatient patient psychiatrist and she diagnosed me as bipolar, recommended that I go to IOP, intensive outpatient at Shepherd Pratt. I started that. I just felt like I had no other way to, no, no other options at that point. Right. Still doing supervised visitation. And then at one point there was an issue with my aunts at their house. I was watching, my daughter's name is Poppy. I was watching her and I was holding her. And there was a conflict and my family members were upset about me being on the phone or trying to arrange something. And they kind of jolted at me and my daughter slipped from the counter and they took her immediately from me and took her in another room. And I really felt like I was like this dangerous, like villain when I, I, it was clearly a mistake. It was a granite counter. She's wearing a onesie, like that kind of thing. And then my ex-husband was there which was another weird dynamic because he was like there, but not in the house while I was having supervised visitation, which didn't make me feel comfortable or safe. So I went outside immediately and talked to him and I was like, I, I'll go to Shepherd Pratt inpatient. Like, because I just felt like everyone's making me out to be a monster and I'm not an unsafe mother, but I don't know what else to do at this point. Like, I don't um, feel like I have anyone. So at at that point, were you were when you were speaking to him, were you still having the the domestic yeah. violence? Uh, okay, I I didn't trust him, but <clears throat> I tried to like get him on my side and just say like I need your help, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which didn't doesn't feel like it makes sense, but I was just where I was. So he took me to the walk in clinic at Shepherd Pratt, and I was admitted. And there were glimpses of like we were joking around a little bit, and like reminders of our connection, but I still really didn't trust him. And I got admitted. And I remember walking down the hallway one of the first days. And again, I didn't really have any of my things. They were all in my car. I was kind of living out of my car and the motels. My car was taken from me. My family wouldn't give me the keys. And I walked down the hallway and I was like, I feel safe. Like for the first time in a very, very long time, I felt safe. And I felt like relieved to be living very simplistically and just having a bed, a room to myself and like focusing on me. So I was there for a week. I really wasn't happy with my care there. I felt like they continued to say bipolar, bipolar, but they weren't looking at, they kept like punishing me for my actions in a way. And they weren't really looking at like the scope of postpartum or that this had anything to do with postpartum. At that Feel like you're the martyr in your family. You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt 
free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. There's a common kind of myth, so to speak, out there yeah. that like if if you're not having symptoms in the first month or three months or whatever people oh. are saying, that it, then it's not postpartum. Was that part of the misstep here? I think care? so. Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize until way after that I poured myself into research that like it could be up to three years after, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, no one, it wasn't even on anyone's radar. And I think maybe the other piece was like a lot, sometimes women who experience psychosis want to harm their children. And that was like the opposite for me as well. Having the intrusions around that. Yeah. I, I really, really want to highlight this point yeah. um, because there are so many misconceptions about postpartum psychosis. And while you're right, that is something that does happen. It's super rare. And th- there's such a spectrum of the mm-hmm. postpartum psychosis experience. So I'm really glad that you're highlighting that because it's such an important myth that we just have to break because what you've experienced is that everyone's thinking that you're going to hurt your daughter. And that is just further traumatizing you. No one's listening to you. It still impacts me today. For sure. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Debunking the myth of like, you're dangerous Mm -hmm. or you're unfit or unwell to be a mother. Yeah. So I was not happy with my care at Shepherd Pratt. I was basically forced to go to a 30 day treatment after that. I felt as if no one would allow me to come live with them. I didn't, I wasn't able to go back into the home. So part of the temporary custody agreement was I wasn't allowed to be around my daughter unsupervised and something around having to go back in my house. I don't know. I can't remember the details of the legalities with that, but I ended up going to a 30 day treatment in Pennsylvania. And I really, to this day, the only benefit of that was that someone first said to me, you're experiencing postpartum psychosis or on the postpartum spectrum. My therapist there recognized that. But I do remember feeling like I'm in these groups all day. I'm in treatment from like 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. I'm going to meetings. 8 a.m. to 9 p.m.? Basically, yeah. Mm -hmm. You were in like a structured schedule. Like you didn't have downtime? Not really. No, Uh there would be some transition, but there really wasn't a lot of downtime, maybe Uh meal times. Uh It was just like continuous activities. And there was a huge emphasis on substance abuse in that program as well. So when you were, I felt like mental health was honored, but it wasn't emphasized. So like you were separated out. I think in the evening time, some people went to mental health and some people went to substance abuse, but like the mental health part just felt like a joke to me. I'm like, I, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I don't need to be hearing groups around this. Like I teach this to other people and it just didn't feel beneficial to me. But again, the most validating part was like someone started recognizing the postpartum. How, how long is this after when you left the home and were like in hotels for two weeks? What's so the six weeks. So I, I think I... So I, I left the home at, on September 24th and I didn't get out of this treatment center until November 26th, I think. It was like the day after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, my ex and my daughter, they did come to visit me a couple times, but I really didn't want contact with anyone at that point. So post-treatment, huh, I, I went to different outpatient therapists, different outpatient patient psychiatrists. 
I ended up transitioning. My psychiatrist at the time started seeing my husband as a patient as well. And we weren't like officially divorced yet. And that felt really weird to me. So I didn't feel comfortable being open with her. And I transitioned to another psychiatrist that I found at the women's mood disorder clinic and at Hopkins. And I went to a couple of different therapists. And now I'm currently doing EMDR work. I've been doing it for about a year now. And that's been right. really, really helpful. That's specific for people who don't know what yeah. that is. That's a, a treatment that's specifically focused on dealing with trauma and healing mm-hmm. from trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess the other piece that I did want to touch on is I'm still battling the custody situation. So about a year when the order finally expired, I ended up filing for joint custody. And that actually was kind of the last straw of my marriage as well. So I went ahead and officially filed for divorce. And we had already done that, but like initiated that process again and then filed for joint custody. And I moved out of my home officially. So when I got out of treatment, I did move back into the home, but there was some weird legal stuff around because I had to be supervised and such. And I didn't feel safe. I never felt safe back in that home. And so I moved in with my mom for a while and then I ended up saving up and moving into an apartment. And in, in terms of the custody piece, I am still dealing with that. I, about a year ago when the divorce became final, I got, it was a little over a year ago, I got um, joint legal custody, but I'm still fighting for joint physical custody. I have unsupervised visitation as of then. So that was October of 2021. And I have my daughter Tuesday, Thursday, and every other weekend. But even saying that out loud is like baffling to me that I'm still fighting this battle and, and trying to prove myself as a mother. So the part of the battle, well, I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's so much to go into about the, the systems and Mm -hmm. the legal system and their misunderstanding of mental health in general, but very specifically postpartum pregnancy and postpartum mental health. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a whole other. It episode. really is. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a lot in there. So the impact on you though, of, of all of this, I mean, there was so, so much trauma that you described in there, mm-hmm. so much loss, so many hoops to jump just to feel like you can live a, like in a normal day-to-day existence mm-hmm. and life and you're still in it. This is mm-hmm. like this heavy stress really, yeah. really heavy stress. Yeah. So, mm, and, and a lot, in a lot of ways, you're still dealing with, with the stress oh, yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. On a day-to-day yeah. basis with trying to co-parent with when are we going to get a court date COVID? I, we don't even have a trial date set mm-hmm. in the order we are supposed to review and do mediation a year after that's totally been pushed back and right. not prioritized. So I feel like if we went back through your experience with a fine tooth comb, we'd find loads and loads and loads of places where things were missed or misunderstood or where better treatment, better support, better lots of things could have taken. Yes. And at the core of it, it sounds like just people not being educated, people not mm-hmm. not knowing what's going on, how to support and how to talk to you about it even. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it sounds like there was a lot of ways where it was whatever was going on was kept from you too. Mm-hmm. Which is just further destabilizing. I would Yeah. I would think. Exactly. So what are the things for you that stand out in terms of where your specific situation, things that were really the misses that Well, I specifically sought out to to be aligned with a midwife because I was very much interested in like the holistic care and looking at all the pieces. And they were aware that I had a previous trauma history, but the basics were this, like, are you in therapy? Okay. You're handling it. Okay. It wasn't like, this is how this can impact you during delivery or having a prolonged labor or anything. And then the other piece that really frustrated me is when I did a follow-up a year later for like a well women's exam, I explained to them, there were GYNs and midwives in the practice. And I had been assigned to a GYN for that appointment. And I explained to them what happened, not in full detail, but just that I had an episode and she was like, Oh, are you going to kill yourself? And I was like, no. And she was like, are you going to kill someone else? And I was like, no. And she was like, okay. And then just like 
so little, I mean, like, I don't need to explain the fact that I definitely didn't go back there, but I was appalled and I still want to like write their practice a letter and say like, this is what really happened. And it's really unethical the way you dealt with this situation. Uh, uh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's incredibly painful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to be like your whole experience to be like condensed into two questions and then dismissed. Yeah. Holy dismissed. And so invalidating. Uh, and that was the thread the whole time. Like people just not understanding. I did want to touch on a piece that really got me through is a friend that I had reconnected with about six weeks, six months after everything happened when I was still getting back on my feet really like believed in me. And it's so funny, ironic or not, I was looking through an old book and I found a letter that he had written me about being authentic and like believing in me and, and really just lifting me up. And long story short, we eventually fell in love and he's been a very, very strong support for me. And I know that I had the power within myself to overcome, but just knowing that like someone had my back for the majority of the ride was, was, I don't know what I would have done, like how I would have dealt with it without that. Yeah. Especially with feeling like you couldn't rely on anybody else Mm -hmm. or trust anybody else. Mm -hmm. There is so much um, misconception and stigma around again, mental health in general, but psychosis especially. And then psychosis and motherhood is, is really, really tough. People start to make a lot of assumptions and I, what I hear is that you, you had the health and well-being of your daughter central to, to everything mm-hmm. um, and for your, yourself as well. I mean, there, there was a big part of you just trying to get to wherever it was that you needed to get to mm-hmm. mentally and emotionally. For sure. uh, it's, it's an incredible amount of strength and perseverance and tenacity and determination to to be able to get yourself through that, especially when you have really limited support. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that now? Do you feel that strength? (laughs) I mean, looking back, yes, I was always determined. I remember even being at the 30 day treatment program and like outlining, like, what is my wellness plan going to be when I go home and like creating my own for myself and to include yoga and meditation and movement and self-reflection and really pacing myself with work. But looking, it's so interesting to share the story because a little over a year ago, I still had supervision. And, and like the fact that like she spends the night and stays all weekend and doesn't want to go home sometimes is like so rewarding. Yeah, that's great. So you have a good connection with her. Yes. Yes. So, you know, we, we, it took a little bit of time to like reconnect because for so many reasons, but we, when we were able to be together, just us, I think that really shifted things a lot. And we go to a trauma therapist for her as well. Mm -hmm. And I meet with them every Friday that she's with me. And I've also prior to was not able to be involved in her trauma Mm -hmm. treatment, which is a whole nother issue. But in the meantime, I sought out working with an early childhood development therapist to kind of get guidance on bonding and attachment and Mm -hmm reconnection but yeah we we have a beautiful relationship so nice i'm really glad to hear that you guys have have made made it through yeah i know that there's so much of your experience and story that we couldn't get to in this short time Mm -hmm. it's three years of of life that are are still and still going on but the the parts that we did hear about I'm, i'm really grateful that you're sharing it with us and giving people who don't know a lot about this, about postpartum psychosis or having manic episodes in postpartum and how, back to your point of how, if that is part of your experience, how an antidepressant is not going to help that, it's going to make it worse and how breastfeeding can be a part of, there's so many factors in here that obviously had, had people around how to support you with would have prevented a lot of this. Mm-hmm. And so your story and sharing with us is, is just such an education. And I'm really grateful that you shared with us today. Thank you so much. I, I'm honored to be here. And I just find it so important to like spread awareness to that. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Right. Now that we have heard from Jillian and you guys have a little bit more information and education on another way that postpartum psychosis can look and feel, uh, hopefully you can integrate this into your knowledge base, certainly for the professionals who are listening, but also for those of you who maybe have experienced a mental health condition uh, or even postpartum psychosis yourself and are really needing to hear other people's stories to get a better sense of what it can look like. For any of you listening who think this may sound like what you're dealing with or what somebody you care about is dealing with, please know that Postpartum Support International has resources for postpartum psychosis. You can go to postpartum.net, click on get help, and you'll be able to find a specialized postpartum and you'll be able to find a specialized postpartum psychosis coordinator. And there's a postpartum psychosis task force that uh, we are associated with at PSI and working on to help make sure that people get the help that they need in any way that they are needing the help. So go to postpartum.net. Please look this information up so that you can know that there are resources available and certainly provide this resource to anyone who you think could benefit, whether it's postpartum psychosis or depression or anxiety or anything related to perinatal mental health. I'm so very grateful that you tuned in and listened to this episode today. Please share this with anybody that you know who could benefit from hearing straight from Jillian herself. Thank you for being here. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell?, laughing in the face of motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're aiming more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.